Now we're turning to God's Word to plug in and to engage with what He has for us. We'll be in Acts chapter 19 again. That's on page 928 if you're using one of the Bibles in the pew. Otherwise, Acts 19, you can find it on your devices or your own Bibles. It's good to hear flipping of pages, so I hope we don't go all digital. It's good to know where things fall in the Scriptures. So be ready. I'm going to pray for us as we turn to the Word and pray for our kids. These are some of our new shoots and Fourth through fourth grade are going to go off to their class if they would like to, to learn and to hear also from God's Word. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you that you are already at work in our midst, in our lives, in our hearts, and in your church here, Lord. We thank you, even praising you, when we don't see you fully. We acknowledge, we proclaim the promises, we stand upon them, Lord. We pray these prayers that you would... Grow us. Help, help develop new shoots in our life. New growth. Evidence of you at work. Lord, we help us have deep roots. Sometimes we don't see the, the changes that are happening when our roots are growing deep in you, in faith, in life, in hope, and in maturity. Help us, Lord. Grow us deep in you. We pray that you would grow fruit into our life through the power of the Spirit, that we would see it, it would be evident in our life, and that we would bless others with the ways you are producing fruit in in us through gifts, through service, or simply through the evidence of the Holy Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Lord, bear your fruit in our life, that we would be people who sow seed of the gospel, who proclaim like Paul did openly, uh, looking for all sorts of ways to engage a lost culture. Lord, we pray that you would send us, plant us, move us, that we would be a reflection, just a reflection of you, Jesus, our great King, our Lord, and our Savior. We pray for our young ones, our little ones as they go, or not so little ones anymore as they're growing up in you. We pray that you would bless them, bless the teachers as they open the Word in their hearts, and that they too would see Jesus and be reminded of his incredible love and pursuit of them. We give you glory and praise this morning. In your name, Jesus, amen. All right, kids, fourth through fourth grade, you're welcome to go to your class. Everyone else, get to Acts 19 if you haven't. I need another sip of coffee. I read the whole, we had the whole, I didn't, Chris read the whole passage of Acts 19 last week. It takes about six minutes to do so. Uh, So hopefully that's fresh in your mind. We're not reading through it in, in its entirety again, but I'll jump to a few select passages as we get there. If you've been journeying with us through Acts these last 15 months with a couple of detours, we have finally arrived in Ephesus, kind of the heart behind this whole uh, direction that we believe the Spirit has led us in was, I had the stirring heart to preach through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. So that's coming up in just a few short weeks, so read ahead uh, so there's no surprises. But we have finally seen Paul make his way uh, as he's journeyed throughout southern Asia, preaching the gospel, coming to various key cities. He finally arrives in another key city, Ephesus. We began looking at this story of his time in Ephesus, which is mostly recorded in Acts chapter 19. 
We looked at it last week and we'll continue uh, this morning and I believe at least next week as well, Lord willing. It's been a long journey, unexpected side trips along the way, maybe some detours. And so that brought me to an analogy and thinking of some of you, how many have driven across the country? Maybe not coast to coast, maybe you have, but the vast majority, good, good, oh, that's, a, man, that's a, lot of, a lot of you. Um, some, of, some of you more recently than others. So you had, you had a starting point, right? You have a destination in mind. You've hopefully mapped out a, a route to take. And you've got some sites that you would maybe like to see along the way, so a bit of an itinerary. But if you expected it to go exactly as you had planned, uh, you were in for a few surprises, right? Uh, How many times did you find yourself, as you reflect back, saying, well, I never thought I would see anything like that? Or, yeah, I never quite expected what happened along the way. And I'm not really speaking of the amaze, amazing sights that you could have seen like the Grand Canyon or Yellowstone or Mount Rushmore, which was a big disappointment to me, but that's just personal. I'm, I'm talking about things like the Corn Palace of Mitchell, South Dakota. Anyone? Also, I mean, not a, far more impressive than Mount Rushmore. <laughs> I was just looking up some of the things that we missed along the journey. Has, any, has anyone seen the world's largest ball of paint in Alexandria, Indiana? No? Okay. One, we can talk about this. So it began as a baseball, and a man decided that he wanted to paint the baseball. And so for 40 years, he painted two coats a day onto this baseball, and it is now eight feet in diameter, weighs over two tons, And he estimates that there's 24,350 coats of paint, but that's now out out of date. And you can see it along the road in Indiana. Or how about the Beer Can Castle of Antonito, Colorado? It's a four-story home made now mostly of scrap metal and predominantly old beer cans. Uh, Cut open, flattened out, hammered to the siding. Uh, crushed and stacked, etc. And the architect, Don Espinoza, who's been working on it now for decades uh, as a, a home for God, says that Jesus has been living inside this home now for many years. And so Don has moved out into a trailer in the woods to make sure that Jesus has residence. And one day, Jesus will take him to uh, Washington where he can meet the president and they can do ministry together. So you didn't quite expect that, (laughs) just like so many things you can see along the way, and if you've driven across the country, you also probably didn't expect your flat tire in Fargo, the tornado in Tulsa, the food poisoning in Pittsburgh, although that should be expected. If you set out out on your journey expecting the unexpected, uh, flexible with your itinerary in your timeline, open to detours, then you probably enjoyed it a lot more than if you were rigid in your cross-country journey. Paul, I think, had this way about him. We've seen it. We've seen him faithfully following the Holy Spirit and having his own itinerary interrupted, where he doesn't give us many of the details of how it happened, Uh, But he said, we were not allowed by the Spirit to continue in the path that we thought. That's a a paraphrase. And so now he finds himself in Ephesus. And while 
he had seen God do so many amazing things, unexpected things, and he was probably open to that. I bet he was still surprised at what he experienced God do in and through him in Ephesus. And maybe the biggest surprise of all was that he was able to minister for three years, uh, more than any other city that he, was, he journeyed through. He came to love the people of Ephesus deeply, while there were certainly many things about the culture that he abhorred. Last week, as we read the whole passage, I tried to keep us on, to use the imagery here, the highway, the main highway through this passage of God's powerful presence as the gospel is proclaimed to see people and lives radically transformed, but ultimately to see the enemy rise up and resist the movement. That's been consistent really throughout Paul's journey, although the details, the side roads, are often very unique. And so I promised, maybe I didn't, but I hinted that this might come, that we would take some side roads this morning because there's just so much in this chapter. You might call them excursions. Uh, Maybe you'll conclude they were dead ends. But you've been warned. So if you are prone to getting car sick, roll down the window, uh, this could be a little bit swervy. Let's come back to the disciples who had not yet been filled with the Spirit. That's how the chapter opens. Paul tends to try to find uh, believers, or he goes amongst the Jews and sees who has, who has soft hearts and open ears to receive the gospel. And these 12 and a half or 11 and a half men certainly did. Why do we say that? Because Luke says about 12 men, as if it was such a large number. But what we know is their names didn't go down in history. God's did. But these men at least had open hearts, open minds to receive the gospel. And as Paul proclaimed it, they were, they were read, readily admitting what they did not know and received uh, the message, though they had previously had huge gaps in their understanding. They were followers of John the Baptist and aware of some of his proclamation of the coming Messiah. They were doing their best to know God and to follow him. But they did not know of Jesus and his ministry, and they did not know of the Holy Spirit. So we say these could not have been believers. Uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, if you do not have the Spirit, anyone who does not have the Spirit of God living in them, they're not of God. They're, 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 they're not a believer. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Spirit will indwell you. The rest of that passage, I, I believe Paul would have preached to this group of people. We're not, it's not recorded in, Luke, or in Acts 19 by Luke. Uh, in fact, there's, there's really no sermon recorded here, and that makes it that's interesting uh, compared to the other cities that Paul has been in. So we have to fill in, fill in our own gaps and assume that Paul preached as he did in these other cities and that his message was the same as what he would write to the churches. And so the letter to Ephesus is very insightful uh, to what Paul's ministry looked like and focused on when it came to uh, doctrine and theology. Romans, I think, would also indicate what he would have preached to this group of 12 or so men. Let's read that passage, Romans 8, 8 and following. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. For anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Certainly not a word-for-word preaching that he would have given to these 12, but certainly would have hit those themes. And the response then, this is verse 5 of Acts 19. On hearing this, these 12 or so men were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Notice Paul's question, if you have your Bibles open there. Paul's first question to them is, did you receive the Spirit? And Paul expected them to know the answer. I think it's worth pausing on that thought for us. Those who believe in Jesus are filled with His Spirit and they know it. That's Paul's expectation. He would write to this church in Ephesus at the beginning of his letter. This is Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14. In Him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Paul says, when you believed, you received the Holy Spirit, and He's your guarantee of all of God's promises, that He will fulfill it. If you are guaranteed of something, you know it to be true. It's not a wonder or I think. And we would rightly ask, do we know, do I know that I have been filled with the Holy Spirit of God? That through my believing in who Jesus is and what He has done, the promises of His Word, I have been filled with the Holy Spirit and I know it. It, I think exemplary, these men are honest in what they do not know. No, we've never heard of the Holy Spirit. With an openness of Paul, teach us, we want more. There's an evident hunger in their life. When many of us, our natural response is to pretend to be more spiritual and to know more than we actually do. It may serve us well, it would serve us well, to be humble where we do not know. With no pretense that we might actually come to know. That we might actually be filled And if that's all you need to hear today as I continue to take some side roads and ramble on, it may be the most important thing for you to respond to today. Whether it's in heart and in prayer to to God through the power of the Spirit, open, Holy Spirit, I I don't know if I know you. Fill me. We are called to seek the ongoing filling of the Holy Spirit. See, while Paul says those who believe will be filled and they will know it, he also exhorts the Ephesians, Ephesians 5.18, I think, be filled with the Spirit. Be being filled would be the direct translation. Be continually filled as you pursue walking with the Holy Spirit. 
that there would be more of the Holy Spirit's empowerment and presence in your life for God's glory, not for yours, for the work that God wants to do in and through you. That's the exhortation. Paul never exhorts believers to speak in tongues. That's what happens here. They're filled with the Spirit. They're baptized. He lays hands on them, and they speak in tongues. Likely, if this is kind of a mirror of the Pentecost moment from Acts 2, they're speaking in languages unknown to them, but real languages discernible to perhaps others who are hearing and are amazed that God's gospel is going to the ends of the earth to be known and understood by all peoples. That's the evidence of this kind of speaking in tongues as the Holy Spirit moves upon His people. But it is not normative. Although in Acts, there's a bit of a repetitive pattern that we might say, well, that seems to be normative. This is the only time in Paul's ministry where we see this directly take place. Of all the cities and places he went with the power of the Spirit clearly at work in so many ways, we don't have a normative pattern of this kind of speaking in tongues, Pentecost-type moment. And Paul never exhorts believers, followers in Jesus, to speak in tongues, though he does not forbid it. In fact, in his letter to the Corinthians, he speaks openly of his own tongues language, which may be something a little bit different, and that would take us into a complete side road. But what I want you to hear is that Paul does exhort believers to pursue prophecy, the other evidence of the Spirit at work here. To make God known, to speak on God's behalf, perhaps something that was lesser known, to reveal, to honor God, to elevate and magnify who God is. That's ultimately what prophecy is, to make known the hidden. So it may have to do with something yet to come kind of prophecy. God has revealed or given vision. We believe, we submit to the, to the assembly of believers. Could this be a word from the Lord? But it may primarily be making known who God is. Proclaiming what even the speaker previously did not know to the glorification of God, to the extolling of His name. Paul does exhort believers to pursue that gift. And he does exhort believers to pursue the ongoing filling of the Holy Spirit. And so we want to be people that ultimately have God's agenda. There's a little phrase that I think is common in alliance circles, this this movement that believes in the ongoing empowering work of the Holy Spirit, that we are still in the same age, the same church age. Jesus has died, resurrected, and ascended, and has not returned. That puts us in the same age as this early church, though it's been 2,000 years, and we would probably believe that none of the early church fathers and apostles would have ever imagined that timeline but we believe we're in the same age. And so amongst alliance circles, we would say, man, we are seeking the ongoing empowering and work of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God for whatever He wants to do. We have an expectation, but no agenda. Or if there's an agenda, Lord, may it be yours and yours alone. I'll add that, but that phrase, expectation, no agenda. 
We better have an expectation that the Holy Spirit is still living and active, filling His people and His church, and wants to make Jesus known and God the Father known to all peoples. That's His mission. We have an expectation. Because apart from His work, we have no hope. But we do not have an agenda. Though we may rightly, with right heart, pray, Holy Spirit, we want to see more of Your work in our midst like that early church experienced, like they saw in Ephesus, like they saw in Corinth and Athens and Thessalonica and Philippi. We long for that, Lord. But your will and your way alone, not our agenda. We just want to see you. We want to see you more fully and worship you more completely. That was a side road. See if we come back to this other side road. I think probably a good transition into number two, miraculous aprons. William Sonoma could only dream of this skew. Verse 11, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Uh, probably the best translation of, of this was like Paul's headband, sweatband, the, his like work clothes that he had because he was a laborer, he was a leather worker. So imagine he's wearing this sweatband or armband or something wrapped around and he, he's, it's dirty and sweaty and he's discarded it and that's picked up and taken to the sick. There's probably some analogy we could run along those lines, but that would take us even further into the weeds the point is extraordinary. Even amongst all the work of the Holy Spirit that we've seen now in Acts, Luke says, extraordinary. Therefore, unusual things were taking place here. Not normative things. Probably a good time, maybe it should have been earlier in this message already, to remind us of the difference between prescription in Scripture and description. Very important as we're studying Scripture. God, does your word here command us, prescribe us to do this? And there's much of that in Scripture. But there's also much description. Luke is saying, this is what happened. Not, this is what will always happen if. No, no, he very clearly says, this is unusual. We've, we've rarely seen anything like this before. Makes you think, have we seen anything like this before? Not, re not really. Maybe, maybe a parallel would be Acts 5, where it, seems, it says that Peter's shadow would fall on people and people were healed. That's a powerful expression of the work of the Holy Spirit. We may think of, this probably, this probably will give insight to Acts 19, help us understand and respond to it rightly. Jesus' ministry and his ministry of healing and the power of the Spirit. You remember this time where he was in the crowds and they pressed up against him? And a woman who was subject to bleeding, had, had, had an infection for years and just longed for healing. She said, if I could just touch the edge of his cloak, his robe, his clo outer clothing, I, I know I can be healed. He has that much power within him. And Jesus said, when she did, who touched me? And the disciples kind of, 
Did they laugh at him? Or they certainly questioned him. What do you mean, who touched you? We're, we're crammed up against, we're in the middle of a crowd. But he discerned power had moved through him. The Holy Spirit had worked to heal. What, and he turned and he saw this woman and he said, your faith has healed you. Not his cloak. Her, her faith in the power of God to heal in Jesus is what affected her healing. That's a commentary for us as we try to understand how could these, how could a headband, a sweaty headband, a handkerchief, actually bring healing? It wasn't the handkerchief. It was the power of God at work in the way that he wanted to work in evidence of who he is and what he always wants to do and desires to do. God is our healer. In fact, one of, one of the fourfold creeds of the Alliance movement, Christ, Jesus Christ is our Savior, our Sanctifier, He makes us holy, and our Healer, and our coming King. We believe that the Holy Spirit still desires, because it is God's desire, to heal people. And we can come back to this expectation, no agenda. We believe God's perspective is all are healed who believe in Christ. They've been healed by Christ's wounds and what Christ has done on the cross. That is finished work. We have not yet experienced the fullness of that healing. Soul and spirit, yes. Body, flesh, no. Not yet. But God's desire is to heal and to make whole. I was asked this week, so when are we going to have another healing service? And I want to respond, every Sunday is a healing service. First, primarily through the ministry of God's Word, proclaiming His promises, who He is and what He desires to do, the ministry of healing comes to those who receive. Hope for the hopeless. Forgiveness for the guilty. Peace for those in anxiety and fear. Deliverance for those trapped in bondage to sin. Redemption for those under shame. Healing comes. Where there's brokenness, healing comes through the power of the Word. That's the ongoing ministry in a primary way of the Holy Spirit. So every Sunday is a healing service. I know the question was more specifically for those struggling with physical ailments, illness, disease, or even on behalf of others who are. And again, I, my response must be every Sunday. It doesn't need to be a special Sunday, but I will give a special reminder that the elders are always privileged to pray, and we have no magic aprons or hankies, and we won't take our headbands and rub them on your affected area, thankfully. But we will have oil. Right? James 5 teaches us this way. James 5, 14 and following, is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church. I'm giving an invitation, but your response to come and to ask is a calling of elders. Let them pray over him or her, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. 
The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. This isn't just a physical healing section of Scripture. It's a whole person healing in Jesus. Forgiveness is promised. Healing is promised. Physical healing may come now. We have an expectation in His work with no agenda. The oil becomes that symbol. It's not the oil, but the reminder of the Holy Spirit's presence to heal. So I invite you to come, whether it's as we respond in song and singing, come tap me on the shoulder. Uh, We can pray here during. Sometimes that's a challenge because we end up yelling our prayers as others are worshiping, Uh, but you are welcome to come. Don't delay, Uh, or you can tarry after the service. Find us, and we would love to pray with you for healing as we continue to believe in the power of God to heal. And now I I wrote in, there's no transition here, to the seven sons of Sceva. So it's like cutting across four lanes of traffic at 80 miles an hour because we're about to mix our exit. So buckle up. Alistair Begg, one of my favorite preachers, preaches in uh, Cleveland. He says, we should really remember the seven sons of Sceva as the seven streakers of Sceva. if we remember them at all. Luke names them itinerant Jewish exorcists. So that is a job, apparently. Some of us have missed our calling. If you want to check your concordance, cross-references, or your lexicons, you will not find this anywhere else. So again, the things we may see and shake our heads at. And reminder, description, not prescription. By the way, if you check the kind of the Jewish historical records, there's no record of Sceva ever being a high priest, which makes us wonder if he just took that title upon himself. We see it in his sons pretending to be something that they are not. There's such a clear contrast that Luke is giving us here from these first 12 or so men that we meet who are open, who are hungry, who honestly say, no, we don't know, help us, to these seven who are pretending to be everything that they are not in order for their own gain, actually. And they, they are apparently going around driving out evil spirits by no power of their own or even barely any knowledge of their own. They're dabbling in things that they do not know. Oh, in the name of Jesus, whom this Paul preaches, they're trying to find power in something they know nothing about, and they become totally exposed, pun intended, to the work of the enemy, the work of the evil one. This is really one of the strangest accounts in all of Scripture. Verse 15, the evil spirit answers them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped upon them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I had a quote up last week because I thought I might get here last week. I didn't, and it was asked to me, what did that have to do with anything? And it's still fairly fair to ask that question, but Matt Chandler, another one of my favorite preachers, said, if, if you're in a fight and you're... And you were wondering if you won that fight. Well, if you started the fight with pants on, at the end of the fight, you had no pants on. No, you, you lost. You lost that fight. There's no argument, and anyone that was watching would be certain of that as well. 
But we do. We want to, we, it's hard not to laugh at this account and, and maybe even cheer. They got exactly what they deserved. Trying to invoke the name of Jesus, knowing nothing of Jesus. And I wonder how it, how it did spread throughout kind of the history of the church. But the immediate response was no laughing matter. We see it in verse 17. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus. So it, I mean, it spread. You did not want to be one of the sons of Sceva. In fact, I wouldn't have been surprised if they moved right out of town. It became known amongst Ephesus, both amongst Jews and Greeks. Here's the response, not laughter. Fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Here's what happens when, when the enemy, when evil manifests itself, the vast majority of people flee from that darkness to the light. And I believe the enemy knows that. There's a famous line in a movie, The Usual Suspects, that the greatest trick uh, the enemy ever pulled, the devil ever pulled, was to convince the world that he did not exist. That's not scripture. Don't quote it as such. But we know what is Scripture, that the enemy, the devil, is crafty, cunning, and sly. He prowls around. He remains in darkness. He's looking for someone to deceive, to drag off, to pull away. He's a liar and the father of lies, so his native tongue is deception. We know all those things are true, so what's into context, maybe that statement is not too far from the truth. When enemy, the enemy manifests himself, if he were to make himself known, as in this case, fear comes upon the vast majority of people. Fear of the evil realm, the spiritual realm, and a fleeing to the light. The name of the Lord is extolled and proclaimed in contrast to the work of the enemy. It's a spiritual world that we live in and we're often completely ignorant of it. But it is real. And those who trivialize it or dabble in it or worse, seek to profit through it are exposing themselves to much more than a beating and a shaming. Ephesus in that day was known as the spiritual or occult center of the region, perhaps the whole empire for its sorcery and witchcraft. Many within the city would simply have gathered not only shrines from these gods, and you may have to get into that next week, but they would have had scrolls or writings with spells or incantations or meditations to what they believed was to protect their household and bring blessing and invoke the spirits to work on their behalf. And these would be on their shelves or by their, their, by their beds at night and they may repeat them as like prayers or mantras. And today, most of us, or we might even look into our culture and say, well, that, that doesn't exist. We don't dabble in things like that. And yet we say, what's the harm in believing in some kind of spiritual meditation to pursue uh, some form of nirvana or, or higher experience? Or we believe in a, in, in a karma or a rule or the, the work and power of the universe as if there's some secret to that that could, through our thought and emotion and our devotion in that way, bring a blessing to us or some form of luck charm. What's what's the danger 
in that. According to Paul, there is great and grave danger in dabbling in the spiritual realm of which we know very little. When Paul wrote back to this church, again, in his letter, this is Ephesians 6, verse 12, he said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, ultimately, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers that are over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul teaches that there is an authority and an order in our world. That God ultimately has allowed rule and reign for a time to the enemy and his minions. That there are spiritual forces in our world and that's ultimately the world that we battle against. Far more dangerous than earthly opposition. And Paul was very aware of who the prince And the power of our world is in this present time until Jesus, our true king, will return and finally overthrow and prevail against him. And we say, do we we encounter this spiritual realm today? Absolutely. Are we always aware of it? Absolutely not. This hill has a long history of the occult. I don't know that that's all that different than other places. This isn't any kind of fear tactic, but the stories that I've heard in my ministry here in these years that goes decades long are beyond what you might even see in an X-Files episode. Digging back into the archives there. The reality of what we are up against is something that none of us will truly know. We're not called to go on an attack as believers, but we are called and reminded that we are ambassadors for the true king. The authority that he has over all is given to his people. And we don't need to go on an attack, but we are called to stand firm and to resist the enemy. I'm not given a lot of other instructions on what that looks like, but I would guess that it has much to do with proclaiming who Jesus is, His power and alone, as if it's anything about us. And through prayer and the Word of God, standing firm. And the enemy will flee, James says. Resist the devil and he will flee in the authority of Jesus. Do not be ignorant of where power and authority comes from, but be assured you have been given it. You're never alone nor unarmed. Paul says in Ephesians 6, verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Now we find ourselves on a detour through the side streets of the wrong side of the tracks. So we say, hey Google, find alternate route. I guess we're not hooked. Yeah, just checking. (laughs) Hey Google, get us back on track. I'm sorry, I cannot help you with that. That's what I thought. Verse 17 
and fear fell upon them all. I've read this. And the name of the Lord was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them, and they found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. It's the last thing the enemy wants to see happen. Those in Ephesus have their eyes open to the reality of the spiritual world and the gravity of the danger of the evil that is rampant amongst them. They come to see who the true king is. And so they exercise these idols in their life, these sources of power that they have willingly allowed into their homes, into their lives. It's at great cost to them. 50,000 pieces of silver. We're uncertain exactly what that would equate to today. Somewhere probably in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, as many scholars have sought to guess at. Following Jesus will cost us. It will cost us much. In its place, what we gain is invaluable, is eternal. But it will cost us in this life. Jesus said, Matthew 16, verse 25, whoever would save his life will lose it. See, if you're trying to hold on to your life and to make your life on this earth, it will be lost. It will be taken. It will pass away. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Did I have that quote up there from Jim Elliot? He's no fool who gives up what he can never keep to gain what he can never lose. Essentially paraphrasing Jesus' words here from Matthew 16. I wonder, as I said last week, and I'll do some more work on this, it won't be hard work to do to see our connection with the Ephesians both our culture and society as a whole, but even, even us. There are so many parallels that were removed in so many other ways, 2,000 years of history, history geographically, socially, culturally, politically, and yet there's so many parallels. I wonder what would happen amongst God's people if the Holy Spirit were to fall upon them in ways that... He fell and worked in Ephesus. What would be burned in our day? Would it just be a, is this just, just, just a metaphor? If our eyes were truly open to who Jesus is, if they were beginning to be open to the spiritual realm, the reality that is around us, and we come to see what we had not previously seen both in our lives, in our hearts, in our homes, what would be burned? And would we be quick to do so? Would we come open and confessing and divulging what we had been dabbling in and allowing and inviting into our life? We have that opportunity metaphorically today. As we come in response to King Jesus, as we take and receive, as we do this every week, we receive from the table, we take and eat, just as Jesus said, and it's 
modeling that first picture of the table where he broke bread and shared the cup, we take and receive. This requires an emptiness to be filled. Otherwise, we're just gluttons. Lord, empty us. Make us hungry and thirsty for more of you. But that means emptying ourselves of earthly things that have a hold and a fill in our life, especially evil things. There's evil things that we know are drawing us away from God, and then there is just stuff that clouds and distracts and keeps us from Him and certainly isn't drawing us to Him. We have the opportunity to see those things burned today. Will we do so or will we tarry? Will we exercise these out of our lives or will we make excuses and justify? Will we say, I'm not ready. I have more time. Do you? I'm speaking to believers now in Jesus Christ. You have the Holy Spirit as a deposit. You are secure. But if you have allowed things to remain as these believers did, they're believers and then their eyes are open to the things that they've allowed into their life that are evil and they want nothing to do with them. If God is speaking and working in that way, I thought about examples, but I thought that'd be too limiting. I trust the Holy Spirit to be revealing those things to you. We have that opportunity this morning to respond in that way and to see those things burned, forgiven, nailed to the cross. We may yet have time, and the Holy Spirit may yet work that in us, but that is a presumption. If there are any in our midst who, going back to the beginning of this message, would say, I do not know. I think I think I believe, but I do not know that I've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Then as you come to this table, like you likely have many times, and you receive, may that be your prayer. Holy Spirit, fill me that I would know it. That I would know you. And we trust Him to do the work in your life that you would know it. And it will not be in the same way as We have seen necessarily in the same way as we have seen. Our God loves to do new works, extraordinary things, supernatural things. And we pray that He would do those in our midst today. So you still want to see the amphitheater and the the stone that fell from heaven in the image of Artemis. But it's getting late. We're all falling asleep. We need to find the motel soon, so we need to get to an exit. And I anticipated this, so I said maybe we'll see it next week. Let's finish with Colossians 3, another writing from the Apostle Paul that maybe maybe would connect some dots on this detour, dead-end excursion of a sermon. Colossians 3, verses 1 Through 10, I'll skip a few, so if you want to make sure that I'm reading it accurately, you can get there. Colossians 3. 
If then you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. That's verse 5. As we seek Him, this is the right order, right? The right focus. Our eyes fixed upon Him. Dwelling upon who our God is and what He has done in Jesus. Now we respond as the Ephesians did. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Whether it's sexual immorality or impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness. These are idolatry. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. See that, that, see that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. It's a continual process. The language there is ongoing. Put off, put on. Our new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator. Lord, thank You. I'll invite the team to come and Help us to lead into response. Lord, thank You. King Jesus, we confess, we divulge habits, behaviors, thoughts, attitudes, values, and beliefs that are opposed to You. We do not want to just be general. Lord, let it be specific. As we come to You, as we respond to You today, we draw near to You. Thank You that we can do that. Amazing, this is even possible Lord, we extol the name of Jesus because we know your promise. No matter who we are or who we aren't, no matter what we've done or what we have not done, even if we've given ourselves to evil things, allowed them to remain, invited them into our life, we confess them and we are forgiven. We are healed. We are made holy because of Jesus. Thank you for the not just good news, the gospel, the incredible news, the life-giving, life-transforming, even culture-changing power of the Holy Spirit when He falls upon a people that are open and longing for more. May we be that kind of people this morning and in the days ahead. The days ahead.